Would you turn in your Bible, please, to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. May we bow together in prayer, please. Our Father, we thank Thee for this precious hour when God's people have come together on the first day of the week to worship Thee in spirit and in truth, to sing praises to the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. We pray Thou wilt speak now to our hearts just as we have worshiped Thee in song praise Thee in our offerings. May we now meditate upon Thee and hear the, head, the, the voice of God to our hearts through the spoken word from the written word. May the Holy Spirit do His work of conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Proverbs is a collection of little pithy statements each one of them would stand alone. You do not have to read a paragraph of Proverbs to get the truth of what is being said. And so, with that in mind, would you look carefully at Proverbs 29:18? Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Where there is no vision, the people perish. The word vision does not necessarily mean what we often think of as vision. We think if we have 20-20 vision, we have good eyesight. Sometimes we think of vision as the ability to see far, see near, read well, or be able to look through look for like a needle in a haystack. I know some people that can, you mention something is lost and they can look around, they find it just like that. Maybe they have good perception vision. But the vision that is spoken of here is more related to revelation from God than it is physical eyesight. The statement that the proverb writer Solomon is making to our hearts is that it, when there is no revelation from God, the people wander around aimlessly and ultimately go down for the third time. They perish, and the work perishes, and the things of God fall apart. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Vision has to do with the tomorrows of life. Some people are very nearsighted and cannot see afar off. Henrik Isben, on January 3, 1882, wrote a letter to George Brands. He said, I hold that man is in the right who is most closely in league with the future. Klein Staples Lewis said, the future is something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is. Mrs. Charles Lindbergh, the wife of the famous 
man who made that solo flight across the ocean, said the wave of the future is coming and there's no fighting it. It's going to be there. And Rainier Moray Rilke, who lived from 1875 to 1926, said the future enters into us in order to transform itself in us long, long before it happens. And William Shakespeare said there is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how you will. And when Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote his great poem, Loxley Hall, he said this, he died in 1892, he said this with great perception, for I dipped into the future, far as human eye could see, saw the visions of the world and all the wonder that would be, saw the heavens filled with commerce, argosies of magic sails, pilots of the purple twilight dropping down from costly bales, heard the heavens filled with shouting, and there rained a ghastly dew from the nation's airy navies grappling in the central blue, till the war drum throbbed no longer and the battle flags were furled in the parlor of men and the federation of the world. Alfred Lord Tennyson saw a whole lot more than he saw. He had not only perception, I think he had revelation. And lots of poets who enter into a closet of prayer with God can see what they cannot see. They can see more than they can see, and they can see beyond what they can see. Just like the writer said, where there is no vision, the people perish. Tennyson saw the day of the great Air Force carriers and the armies of the world fighting wars in the air when there was no such thing as an airplane. It behooves us to look beyond what we can see. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 1, the writer, the, poor, the, 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 the writer Isaiah, the great prophet, said, the burden of the valley of vision. He spoke of that valley of vision as a great burden. And sometimes there is a burden connected with a vision because it makes us do something about what we're about to see, what is about to happen. And in Acts 26, 19, when Paul, the great preacher, missionary, was before Agrippa, he said, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I had a vision in the night, Paul said. I stood at Troas, and there were some men that said, come over into Macedonia and help us. And he did it. That wasn't the first vision he had. Right after he was saved in the city of Damascus, he had a vision. Ananias came and told him how great things he must suffer for Jesus' sake and what he was to do, the great assignment that he was to have to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And for the next 32 years, the apostle Paul went and went and went, going way out beyond what anybody had ever done and took the glorious gospel because he had a vision. That vision was not only eyesight, it was not only perception, it was not only discernment, it was revelation. We need something like that. 
I want to suggest three kinds of vision we need or three areas of vision without a vision the people perish first of all the vision of truth the vision of doctrinal truth sometimes we can believe a doctrine and it doesn't mean anything to us it doesn't move us it doesn't do anything for us we talk about the sovereignty of God and yet we worry and, and pull our hair and wring our hands spend hours and hours and hours and hours worrying when God is in charge and the Bible says God is able to work all things together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose I want us to think for a few moments about the doctrine of hell a vision of the doctrine of hell is it just academic I'm sure that if I said to everyone in this room this morning do you believe there's a hell almost everybody would say yes if you don't believe there's a hell you wouldn't want to come to this church because we're fundamental we believe that we preach it we believe the Word of God you wouldn't feel very comfortable here if you didn't believe there was a hell but I want to know what has that doctrine ever done for you and for me the Bible tells that Jesus told about the man that went to hell and the scripture says in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torment and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried out oh father Abraham I am tormented in these flames send Lazarus let me dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue I'm tormented in these flames is that just an academic statement or do we really know it and believe it and know that your son and your daughter if they do not get saved will be in that same condition one day crying out send somebody that they may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue I'm tormented people are going to hell hell is real and we need a vision of the awfulness the reality the tragedy the tyranny the torments of an eternal hell I want to tell you it blows my mind I can hardly deal with it when I think of some of the men and women that I've pled with and sat beside and talked with and urged upon them the truths of the gospel and they sort of laughed and they said well not now preacher leave me alone don't pressure me don't push me and I, I embarrassedly leave not embarrassed before them but embarrassed before God because I do not stand there and plead with them and urge them because one day they will be separated for God forever from God and from hope and from the gospel invitation and never again will anybody ever knock on their door or urge them or plead with them to give their hearts to Christ I want to know do you have a vision of hell do you know that some of your loved ones are going to be there maybe in a little while not very long some of those guys and girls that live next door to you up at Western do you believe that or is it just an academic thing yeah I believe there's a hell what about Mary and Jane and Joe and Harry are they going to spend eternity in hell is it worth the embarrassment of going with your Bible and knocking on their door and urging them with love and constraint and care to go and come with you to the Word of God and to the house of God do we care enough to go out into the lanes and highways and byways of the city and urge people to come do we have a vision of the awfulness of hell 
And then I want to ask you, do you have a vision of the preciousness of heaven? Robert sang about it a little while ago. Surely all of us were drawn closer to heaven as he sang. I got a little homesick for heaven as he sang. Heaven is a wonderful place. The night before Calvary, Jesus began to talk about his decease on the cross. He's going to die for the sins of the whole world. Their hearts were broken. Those disciples loved him. They cared about him. They'd been with him three days, three, three years. And they didn't want him to go away. They didn't want him to die. And then Jesus began to say to them something that has rung down through the corridors of the years and comforted saints all through the ages. When Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You want to know how to get to heaven? Get in the way of Jesus. Get in his way. He'll lead you there. You let him come into your heart? Nobody. I say this pointedly, underscoredly. Nobody who has ever put his trust in Jesus Christ has ever been lost. Because Jesus inside of you is not going to hell. He is going to heaven and he's going to take you with him. And heaven is a wonderful city. Over there in that precious city. No evil thing cometh to despoil what is fair. Jesus is waiting to welcome us there. It's a city 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high. And there's stories on top of stories and avenues on top of avenues. And there's plenty of room. There's no housing shortage. And nobody lives in some little tiny, little tiny hut on the corner of glory land. We have mansions. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And over there in heaven, we're going to sing. If you don't enjoy singing, you're going to have a hard time in heaven. That's the reason these folks that are sick have special songs that they like. The closer we get to heaven, the more we want to sing about heaven. Sing the faith songs, Emmanuel songs. Now I want to know, do you have a vision of heaven? It's going to be your homeland. And listen, if you have a vision of heaven, you're not going to get so contented here that you get so filled with the things of this world and the little toy playthings and the little old friends that we have here that hook us down with guy wires to the earth so that we are, are not freed into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So many people live dwarfed, little, tiny, crippled lives when God wants us to have a taste of heaven right here. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I want to scale the utmost height and catch a glimpse of glory bright. For faith has caught the joyful sound, the sound of saints on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. When? Here, not then, here. And if we will yield our lives to Christ, to, so that we have a surrendered heart to him, we can bring heaven down. We sing the song, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. 
That's what happens when we get saved, but it also happens day by day as we get filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to see a vision of healing. God heals the broken hearts. He delighteth to heal the broken hearts. If you've got a heart that's hurt today by some of the calamities that fall, by some of the hurts, by some of the faith, some of the failures on the parts of other people, God will heal those things if you just have a vision to see it. And without a vision, the people perish. Because of time, I must press on. I want you to see a vision of sin. Sin is a terrible thing. Sin is an ungodly curse and blight upon men. And we need to see it for what it is. In Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin is an awful thing in the life of a Christian, and it's an awful thing in the life of a sinner. You see, there are two kinds of sinners, a saved sinner and a lost sinner. And those who are saved don't have anything to brag about. We don't have anything to look down our nose at somebody else about. Because we're just a sinner saved by the marvelous, wonderful grace of a loving God who reached down and lifted us up and the old rugged cross made the difference. Now sin, whether it's in the life of some old drunken debaucher, or whether it's in the life of some white-collared man, sin, whether it's in the life of somebody who's been through all the trials of life, or whether it's in the life of a little child, Sin is a terrible malignancy, a cancer that eats away at the heart stream. And if it's left undone, untouched, untreated by the blood of Christ, it will land the sinner in hell. I want to talk for a few minutes about the sins of God's people. That's the sin that makes God sick, and I think that's the sin that causes lots of people to stumble. There are lots of fakes in life, a lot of fakes. They pretend like there's something when they're really nothing. You can fool your mom and dad. You can fool the preacher. You can feel, fool some friends. And then when you get out with the other gang and they listen to the rock music and they take God's name in vain and they go to the places of the drink and the drugs and you're there and you don't say a word about it, you're a fake. No matter how much show and pretense you put on. And I want to tell you, I have righteous indignation against some people who would tend to make others think there's something when deep inside there's a terrible putrefying sore and dead men's bones in their heart and their life. You need to see a vision of that. Sin is an awful thing. And sin causes people to stumble into hell. Terrible thing for a man to go to heaven and leave behind him a whole bunch of people tumbling headlong into hell because you didn't do anything to stop them. I want to tell you, I feel guilty sometimes and not dealing more harshly with, with sin. Now, I love people. I want to be a comfort to people. I wish I had, I wish I had a hundred, hundred more hours, thousand more hours than I do in a day, in a week. I have so many demands in my heart. Not people, not demands that people make, but demands that my heart makes. On my, on my time schedule to be with people in their bereavement, in their sorrow, in their trouble, in their time of difficulty. 
And I wish I could be at every place my heart desires to be. But I think one thing that I have not been as harsh on is sin in the lives of God's people. I've, I've been knowledgeable sometimes of God's people stumbling into sin. And I've tried to help them. I've tried to counsel with them, pray with them. I think I need to get mad about it. I think I need to point some fingers and some faces and say, Bud, that's sin, and you're going to cause somebody else to stumble into hell over your sin. And I think I'm about to declare that kind of law, war. I saw a dear man that I respect yesterday. I said, I want you to quit smoking. And I want to say to everybody in this room, if you smoke, that's a sin. You're destroying the tabernacle of God and one day you may end up with lung cancer and cough your life out and, and try to breathe and you can't get one little old decent breath and you go, <laughs> and you die and you do it because of sin and maybe it's because I didn't warn you enough and so I want to go on record as warning you that smoking is a sin and it may cause you an early death. If it doesn't cause you an early death, it may cause somebody else one. One of our dear Christian ladies in this church told the people that she worked with, I'm going to get lung cancer from you. I don't smoke, but I'm going to get it from you. You keep this room filled with smoke all the time. They just laughed at her. And lo and behold, she got lung cancer. And she died. And then they came out a few years ago. She died a number of years ago. They came out a few years ago and said, it is possible to get lung cancer from other people's cigarette smoke. And I want to tell you, you may not hear this in any other church. And you may say, well, I'm going to leave Glendale today and I'm going to go to some church where I never hear that again. That's fine. You can do that, my dear brother. But I want to declare war on sin. And that's not the only sin. The sin of fakery, pretense, hypocrisy you pretend to be something when you're nothing at all we need a vision of that and if that's true in your life you need to come to grips with it and repent of it and turn to God and ask God to cleanse you and because of my quick my time schedule I've got to go to the next point maybe I'll preach some more on that tonight but I want I believe my friends that we need a vision of victory we need a vision of victory. Noah had a vision. God said in 120 years, I'm going to bring judgment on the world. I want you to go preach judgment. And he did it. Moses had a vision. God said, Moses, I'm going to let the children of Israel go out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. You lead them. They tried to do, they did something nobody had ever done before. You imagine the audacity of Moses going before the court of Pharaoh and saying, God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who's God? And he went again and again and again. And he had the audacity to risk his life and risk failure. You know they could have laughed him out of town. Suppose those, suppose those pestilence hadn't come. Suppose the frogs hadn't come and the lice hadn't come and the blood hadn't come. Suppose when he went in there and announced that tonight the death angel was coming and it didn't do it. He'd have been the laughing stock of, of Egypt. But he believed God. And he had a vision of what God wanted to do. And so he did it with all of his heart and all of his mind. God said, David, I want, I want your son Solomon to build a temple. And I want you to collect all the materials for it and get them ready. And so he put an edict out in Israel that he was going to get all the gold and the silver and the wood and acacia wood and 
and the cedars of Lebanon and all those things. He's going to get them all ready. God said, said David, you can't build it because you've been a man of war, but you get it all ready. And he got it all ready, just like God said. And then he died. Solomon came in and built that beautiful temple. The queen of Sheba came and said, not half has ever been told. Why did they do that? They had a vision of what God wanted done. Isaiah had a vision. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord delivered? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. I say, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? I'm talking about the God-man who's going to come. Who's that? I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And the prophet looked down through the years and saw the Son of God, the Son of Man, dying on a cross. He had a vision, and he told his vision. And he worked his vision. And he did it. Paul stood at Troas one night. He had a vision. He saw some men standing over in Macedonia across the GNC saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And Paul, assured that that was of God, got up the next morning and said to his friends, let's cross the sea. God spoke to me in the night in a vision where to go over there. And he went over and took the gospel to Europe for the first time. Now, folks, we need a vision. Years and years ago, the forebears of our church had a vision. One of the men, his name was Sam. He went out, examined this whole area, drove through it, thought maybe there was a need for a church. He put out some bait, found out there was a need. They bought a place, a place over on Jones Avenue. When that house got full, they put a lean-to in the back and got it full. And then they went through a relocation program. They relocated the whole thing. They looked down here at first at Cabell and Roselawn. Thought they wanted that piece of property. And it became unavailable. So they came over here and bought a sinkhole. One piece of a lot at a time. One lot at a time. Until we had all these lots. And those men with no money. Just a heart for work heart for God, heart of love, blood, sweat, and tears, putting their tithes into the work, putting their offerings into the work, putting more than they had into the work. They built and built and built until we are the recipients of the blessings of those early days, those men of vision. We need a vision. By the year 2000, Bowling Green will have 100,000 people in it. Some people say by 1995 we'll have 100,000. Already there are 86,000 people. I think a couple of years ago when I made the announcement there were 80,000 people. I was shocked. Now there are 86,000 people. My friend, we have to have a vision for the future. What we're going to do, whether we're going to stay as a little neighborhood church, content to have 200, 300, maybe 400, maybe on a big day 500 in Sunday school, reach a few people, 
baptize them, thank God for those that get saved, or does God want this little body of people, believers, people that don't have any money, people that don't have anything but a vision, but, a, but blood, sweat, and tears, but dedication and commitment, does God want this little people to do something big for Him as we move toward the year 2000, if the Lord tarries? We need a vision. Without a vision, the people perish. Without a vision, we wander around. Without a vision, we hang our heads in shame. When the work all goes, and God passes over and gives that work to somebody else. Let's pray. Our Father, I'm very conscious of time. I know that the seconds are passing away and the minutes are passing away. And just as this sacred hour of worship will soon be gone, some people's lives will be gone. Some people's opportunity will be gone. Opportunity to make things right with God will be gone. The opportunity to repent of sin. The opportunity to rededicate a life. The opportunity to get saved. The opportunity to obey God. All of that will be gone. Oh, Heavenly Father. Please, may the Holy Spirit touch hearts and move us close to the climate of the cross. And may somebody who has never been saved come to Jesus today. And others who are God's children take a stand for you. In Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. I come to thee. I want to ask you today if you'd be willing to come to Jesus just like you are. Don't try to get better first. Don't say, well, I've got to improve or I've got to change this or something else. I want to ask you, if today you've heard God's voice, harden not your heart. But you say, preacher, I don't know how to have the power to live for live the commitment. I've made commitments before. How will I have the power to do it? Well, I want to tell you here it is. Listen, I just want, don't want to pull any punches. It depends on your character. Depends on your character. If you don't have any character, ask God for it and He'll give it to you. If you have character, move in on the character you've got. If you say, I'm going to be there at 9 o'clock tomorrow, unless you're dead or in the hospital or some terrible emergency comes up, you ought to be there. If you can't be there, let somebody know that's character. If you say, God, I want to rededicate my life to Thee. I want there to be some off-limits in my life. I want to give myself to You. I want to quit being a grumbler in my home and quit fussing my wife or my husband all the time. And I want to live for God and I want my associates to know where I stand. Then do it. Do it. And depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to help you. He'll help you. He'll strengthen you. He'll give you grace and grit and backbone and, and the guts to do it. If you're here and you've never been saved, I want to plead with you to come to Jesus. Just come with your sins and your heartaches and your hurts and, and, and your questions. But come. And he that cometh to Jesus, Jesus said, I'll never cast you out. Never. I ask you to come. If you're saved and you've not been baptized, you need to come today and 
take a stand there and follow the Lord in baptism today. While we sing this hymn, what is it? 249. Just as I am, I plead with you to come to Christ this morning. Now let me ask you, while we sing this, don't leave. Don't anybody walk out the doors. Don't leave unless you've got to go to work at 10 after 12. Don't leave. Just stay with us. And let God speak to your heart while we pray, while we sing.